medical department, only two go to the bench, and we are more than a dozen. We don't train, we only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we're still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. I'm Elja Zais, a medical student in London and your host for today's episode. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Katie Stanislas. Katie is a physiotherapist and hydrotherapist working at Isokinetic Medical Group, one of FIFA's centers of medical excellence. She completed her bachelor's degree in physiotherapy at the University of Nottingham, and she has a keen interest in and has conducted research into menstrual cycle dysfunction in athletes including relative energy deficiency in sport. Thank you for joining us today, Katie. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It really is a pleasure to be here. And I think you had one of my colleagues on last week, <laughs> Matthew Buckcock. Great stuff. And yeah, good to have you on board. So in this episode, we're going to discuss menstrual cycle dysfunction in athletes and the red flags we should look out for. So first question, tell us a little bit about your career to date including what has led to your interest in menstrual cycle dysfunction in athletes? So I've always been involved in sport from a very young age and I played cricket until uh, county level until the age of 18. Um, I then started working in the NHS from 2016 and went on to study physiotherapy at the University of Nottingham. But I wasn't so much my degree that led me into this area of interest. Um, i sort of initially thought I'd end up working in respiratory because I really enjoyed that very acute work. But um, over lockdown, I sort of took the time to really prioritise my health. And in doing so, I actually ended up both overtraining and undereating. And as a result of this, I lost my own menstrual cycle. So it kind of really highlighted to me how easy it was for this to occur. And kind of reflecting on my education, both through school and through, you know, a degree in healthcare, I realised how little education and knowledge there was, not just for athletes, but for those in the non-sporting population like me. So even though I'd been particularly interested in sport, I was actually, you know, just a very active individual. Um, So, you know, again, reflecting on that, it just showed me the importance of physiotherapists and how well-placed we are as professionals to identify and treat the symptoms um, of menstrual dysfunction. So since then, I've been working, as you said, at Isokinetic for the past year, um, working in sport and orthopedic rehabilitation um, across our gym and pool environments. And I've used this platform to publish my own research, which I'm sure we'll come on to later in this podcast, and to present it at our annual football medicine conference in Lyon. Um, a few months ago. And since then, I've also been working very closely with coaches, particularly um, the Warwickshire County squad, as I have very close links with them, to help to improve both recognition and understanding of menstrual dysfunctions in their own athletes to really maximise their own performance. So that's sort of kind of my background and and the the way I sort of came into this this area of interest. Okay. And Now, before we start talking about menstrual cycle dysfunction, 
For clarity, can you explain what would be considered a healthy, normal menstrual cycle? So the menstrual cycle itself is um, the cyclical changes in hormone production, and it allows for reproduction in women. And it's very often broken down into different phases. So we have the follicular phase, which runs from day one of menstruation until ovulation, um, which occurs about day 14. And then the luteal phase takes us from ovulation through to the first day of the next menstrual cycle. Um, and it's controlled by four main hormones. So we have progesterone, estrogen, FSH, and LH. And one of the things that I'm going to focus on with menstrual dysfunctions is disparities in the length of a usual menstrual cycle. Um, but in the literature, a normal menstrual cycle is tends to be defined as between 21 to 35 days. So that's kind of what we base, base our normal menstrual cycle kind of viewing on. Okay, so what can cause menstrual cycle dysfunction? I like to think of the menstrual cycle as the fifth vital sign. And if you read up on this, there's, there's a lot in the literature using it as this, using this term with it, um, because what it can do is it can indicate sort of issues with hormonal imbalances, gynecological diseases or infections, chronic stress or changes to weight and diet. So what it can do is it can tell you a lot about the health of an individual or an athlete. So it can tell you about, um, yeah, their health. Um, so any of those can cause menstrual dysfunction. So the most common being typically stress or changes to weight and diet or any sort of genetic disease or dysfunction. Um, before we delve into like the true causes of menstrual dysfunctions in sport, I want to break it down into five key kind of presentations or type of dysfunction. Um, so first we have dysmenorrhea, which is painful menstruation. And this is a very difficult one to truly kind of determine a prevalence of because pain in itself is a spectrum. It's very subjective. So we see very large disparities in in the reported prevalence in the literature so it varies between about 45 percent to about 93 percent and we also then have oligomenorrhea which is where you see an increased length of a menstrual cycle so typically around 45 days and the prevalence of that is reported to be about 13 percent and then amenorrhea which is the complete absence of menstruation and this is the one that we're really going to focus on on today's podcast and one of the reasons we're going to focus on it so much is because the prevalence in the general population sits at about 5%, but in the sporting population, it sits far higher at about 28%. Um, so we see that disparity. So it's much more prevalent in our sporting individuals. And then the final two types of menstrual dysfunction are hypomenorrhea, which is abnormally light bleeding. So usually fewer than about two days of blood loss. And that's about five to eight percent of our population. And finally, menorrhagia, which is the opposite. So heavier menstrual blood loss. And again, defined at anything over about 80 milliliters of blood loss per cycle. Um, and the prevalence, it's about 20 percent. So now that we've kind of covered the, the five key types, like I said, given that our interests lie in sport and in particular in football, um, it's important to note that, as I said, the most common types that we see there are the oligomenorrhea, so reduced number of menstrual cycles per year, and the amenorrhea. And this it commonly occurs because we see a mismatch between nutrition and energy expenditure. 
Um, so it causes this relatively relative energy deficiency in sports. So reds, which is what we see, we see impaired physiological function as a result of chronic energy deficiency. So what really happens is the body, because it's not being provided with enough energy, it has to shut off non-essential mechanisms in order to preserve that energy for very essential functions. So with reproduction being a very energetic and costly process, that's the menstrual cycle is commonly shut off quite quickly. So that's when you see this amenorrhea, so loss of a menstrual cycle or oligomenorrhea. Um, if we take myself as a case study, I know we're not talking about the sporting population, but again, coming down to someone who's just very active and not tailoring their nutrition to that, quite often you see oligomenorrhea sort of transition into amenorrhea. So you see, you know, initially you see fewer and fewer menstrual cycles and then and then you see it sort of shut off altogether. Um, and what you can see is intentional. So, you know, for those who are trying to lose weight, so weight loss related, or you can see unintentional. So when they're just their nutrition isn't meeting the demands of the, the, the demands that they're putting on their body. So it's very important to consider which type you might think an athlete might be suffering from, because it can give us a very good indication of their relationship with food and with exercise. Because if it's that intentional, you know, you're likely to have that body dysmorphia, you know, the issues around eating and around exercise. Whereas if it's the um, unintentional, it's usually a bit easier to manage because it's just about actually increasing that nutrition to kind of maximize their performance and, and to manage that menstrual dysfunction. Mm -hmm, yeah. And what implications can there be for both the health and performance of an athlete? So as we said, um, I think one of the really key things is actually looking at the mental health of the athlete. Um, so again, coming back to that intentional um, weight loss related amenorrhea, often you see kind of issues with relationships with their own body or with food. So you see recent weight loss, excessive exercise, very restrictive eating. And like I said, that body dysmorphia. Um, but in terms of the more kind of physical symptoms, initially, of course, we're going to see the oligomenorrhea or the amenorrhea. That's always one of the first things to look out for. Um, you can often see cardiac abnormalities. Um, you can see gastrointestinal problems. And uh, very regularly, you see kind of stress fractures as a re result of reduced bone middle, mineral density um, or kind of more frequent overuse injuries. And then in terms of the performance of the athlete, because they just don't have um, kind of the, the sufficient energy being provided, you see quite significant implications in their performance. So you get worsened uh, kind of concentration, um, irritability, you get reduced glycogen stores, which can influence both their muscular strength and their endurance performance. Um, it can really affect concentration and kind of looking overall you get a very reduced training response um, and I think if we if we take the training response in itself I think this is very interesting when again coming back to managing individuals with menstrual cycle dysfunctions particularly athletes because they've worked so hard to perform at this level and they've worked so hard to get where they are I use this when treating them I use it to discuss kind of you know, as a result of this menstrual cycle dysfunction, we're going to have a reduced performance. 
and how this is being influenced by one another. And like I said, it can be really helpful for that treatment and for the recovery, because at the end of the day, they've worked hard to get where they are and they want to be performing at 100%. So, you know, that can be, you know, such a good way of kind of getting over some of those barriers to to recovery. Yeah, um, you know, really great advice there when working with athletes, supporting them to kind of maybe have that frame of mind to help them, you know, understand and, and want to maybe make some changes around that. Um, so you, you've talked about some of the implications um, but in terms of uh, actual red flags, you know, what, what are the red flags that support staff and athletes um, might be able to look out for? To be honest, I use I have that list of health and performance implications and I use them as indicators. You know, if I'm seeing a couple of those features in an individual, it's something, you know, do I want to be having reds or, or that kind of amenorrhea in the back of my mind? Um, and again, obviously, it's going to be weighted differently. If I see someone coming in with kind of worsened concentration, irritability and a reduced training response, I'm going to be less jumping to that uh, amenorrhea than I, uh, sorry, to that uh, red S and menstrual cycle dysfunction than I am if someone's come in with like a stress fracture. So taking those health implications, so cardiac abnormalities, gastrointestinal problems, stress fractures and overuse injuries they're very key in the recognition. So I would always have them, you know, in the back of my mind. Um, any sort of recent weight loss, any kind of issues with um, kind of nutrition or, or um, kind of very intentional weight loss, they can be really good indicators. Um, so yeah, I tend to just kind of pull from, from those, um, that list of health and performance implications and again as physios and as coaches we spend so much time with these players you get to really know them very well and we can so use that to our advantage um when recognizing these these patterns yeah now can you give us a brief overview of the research you've done into this topic today mm -hmm. so like i said my interests really did begin through personal experience and through that I just recognized the lack of teaching and awareness there is not just in healthcare but also you know in sport and in education um, so I wanted to create quite a large study um, to kind of quantify what knowledge is there what what do people know what is the prevalence so I looked at the epidemiology understanding and perceptions of menstrual cycle dysfunction in a British population. Um, and I recruited 667 participants, not using sporting participation as an inclusion criteria, because what I wanted to see was what the general population knew, because I think I'm quite clear proof that actually, it, like I said, it's not those sporting individuals that are the only ones that suffer from this. So of the 667 that I did recruit, um, we found that 76.6% had experienced menstrual dysfunction. So this included amenorrhea, oligomenorrhea, hypomenorrhea and menorrhagia, whereas we discluded dysmenorrhea um, being kind of the painful menstruation just because it's very difficult to determine when it becomes a, a menstrual cycle dysfunction. Um, and then, you know, looking at, at those in sport, I was really keen to understand if you've been involved in sport and if you've had a sporting coach, have you discussed your menstrual cycle with them? And of the 381 who had, 
been involved in sport, only 6% had previously discussed their menstrual cycle with their coach. So very, very low kind of um, proportions. And in fact, if you look at, at those individuals themselves, you know, 9% of my population had been uh, competing at regional level. So, you know, we're talking about relatively high level sportswomen who just aren't having these conversations. So that's what it really highlighted was that there's just a lack of of the discussions that need to be had. Um, and then I, I also just wanted to look at, okay, so we've, we've not had these discussions, but what do women truly understand about what may cause menstrual cycle dysfunctions? So I asked them to kind of identify the causative factors and uh, the most common responses were stress, diet, exercise and hormonal changes. And although correct, um, there was there was just such a lack of detail there's such a lack of kind of any sort of in-depth understanding um so I think what it really concluded was you know there's just such an evident need for further education and not just exclusively for those involved in sport but for the general population as a whole yeah you know what you were saying about communication I think it's really interesting you know the communication between um you know athlete coaches um uh, including support staff in that as well. And um, so that leads nicely onto the next question, which is what tools exist that can help us monitor the menstrual cycle and identify dysfunction, which of course could help support staff and coaches, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah, help are, athletes. Yeah. Definitely. There are, so there are two different types of tools. So there are the tools that I would recommend for healthcare professionals. It's like screening tools. So I use these quite a lot. Um, if there's anyone that, that you might be worried about. So we have the REDS CAT, so the Relative Energy Deficiency in Sports Clinical Assessment Tool. Um, this is such a great tool. It can be used for men and women, um, and it assesses the risk of REDS, and it can really help with return to play decisions. Um, it's very easy to use. It uses um, a traffic light system. And I think one of the what a really difficult thing in healthcare is deciding when an athlete can return to play and trying to facilitate that safe return. And this this gives you, you know, a very clear indication of when it when it is safe for them to, to start training again. Um, and then you also have the leaf Q, which is the low energy availability in females questionnaire. And this kind of covers injury history, gastrointestinal function, and then menstrual function, focusing predominantly on the latter. But it gives you that good overview. And um, it's just very easily scored. It doesn't take too long to fill out. And it can just give you an indication of actually whether someone is either experiencing red S or whether, you know, they may be at risk of it. So for healthcare professionals, they're my two kind of go-to uh, you know, they're my two go-to screening tools. Um, for individuals and coaches, I think the most important thing is to use an app to track the menstrual cycle. Um, there are so many options out there. Uh, the one that I've sort of, I've used for years has been Flow and it it can help individuals to really understand their menstrual cycle better and to recognise patterns um, so it can help with symptom recognition, you know, recognizing whether actually they're getting a little bit further apart or they're a bit shorter. Um, so it can give you yeah, a very good understanding of your own bodily function. Um, but recently, um, there's been a new app developed called Fitter Woman. And this is probably what I'd recommend for those involved in sport. Uh, so it was developed by Georgie Brumvilles, who's the head of performance at Chelsea Women's Football Club. 
Um, and what it does, again, it helps with the pattern recognition and it helps, you know, you understand kind of the changes that are go across the month and how to, to maximize your training and nutrition to each phase of the menstrual cycle. So it's very good for, for providing that sort of information about, about how the different hormones are changing and how that might be influencing your mood or um, your energy levels. So it can give you a very good understanding of actually what's going on and it can help um, identify menstrual cycle dysfunctions. So, you know, much better for those sort of sporting individuals. Um, and they've also gone and created a sister app called Fitter Coach, um, which I've personally not used, but um, I've spoken to the creators of it just to kind of understand, you know, the, the app itself. And what it does is it allows a coach to have an overview of their players' menstrual cycles. So it allows them to highlight, you know, when when there might be something not quite right or when, you know, something's kind of changed within an individual and it just gives you a nice overview and also quite a nice amount of information about, you know, what these changes might mean. So, you know, there are lots of things out there for very accessible information and they're the two that I would go for. You know, if if I weren't involved in sport, I'd probably go for the app flow. If I'm involved in sport or very kind of athletic or, or training quite a lot I'd go for fitter women. Thank you for that and now with all we've discussed so far in mind what is football currently doing well and what could be done better in terms of recognizing dysfunction and supporting athletes who are suffering from it? I think football to be honest is doing really well at the moment I think it's really at the forefront of all of this research and you know I've been working and speaking to a lot of um, some of the physios working at Chelsea and and I think they're really pioneering you know this research and, and the monitoring of the menstrual cycle and, and altering training around it um, and obviously through this they've come to develop apps within the club you know and really encouraging that regular monitoring and making it available to the general public and you also see you know in in women's football you get that holistic kind of multidisciplinary care you know sports medicine in women's sport is really growing and the medical teams are becoming more and more specialized and I think this is a testament to the increased amount of funding that we're seeing and particularly, you know, with the recent success of the Euros, women's football has sort of exploded over the last three, four years. And I think that that increased funding has is allowing us to finally try and catch up with the research that, that the men have, because there's so such high volumes of research in, in male athletes and, and male sports participants. But, you know, we're, we're slowly trying to kind of bridge that gap. And I think football, like I said, is really at the forefront of that. I think in terms of, you know, doing better, I think it's difficult not to overcomplicate things. I think you see that, you know, there are articles to say that strength changes throughout the menstrual cycle, ligament laxity changes throughout the menstrual cycle, coordination changes. And, you know, how can you tailor your training to that? But at the end of the day, you're going to have to compete whatever day, you know, this competition falls on, regardless of where you are in your menstrual cycle. So it's just about understanding what's going on. And sometimes we can get so kind of, yeah, overwhelmed by the, the sheer volumes of research that actually, as long as you're understanding what's going on, and as long as you're able to recognize if there is something that's not quite right, for the minute, that's, that's kind of all you need to be doing. Um, and I think the other thing we need to be improving on is kind of letting that 
the bigger clubs letting what they're doing trickle down and letting that you know education happen in grassroots levels in regional levels and we need to allow it to filter down because yes I'm very aware Chelsea are at the forefront of it but even if we took some of the the smaller teams in the Super League it'd be interesting to see kind of how much they do you know because again you see such disparities in funding even across different teams so I think it would be really interesting to see. And I think that's something that definitely needs to occur kind of in the next few years is we need to kind of start getting girls when they're learning about the menstrual cycle to understand. Yeah, we know what it is, but what happens when it goes wrong and what this can mean? Because like I said, it can have such significant influences on health and performance. Yeah, no, Absolutely. So Katie, thank you. I'm going to draw that to a close. I found that really interesting and I'm sure the listeners have too. We'll make sure to include a link to the research that you mentioned when we publish this podcast. Um, So yeah, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the FMPA podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Alternatively, please check out the podcast section of the FMPA website. Thank you for listening to the Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. Have a great day.